Hello, this is Richard Lanford. I'm the redheaded preacher for whom the redheaded preacher podcast is named. I'm standing here right outside the front doors of our church building. Outside on a beautiful sunny day, I'm in some shade, thankfully. I have a what's called a Celtic complexion. So the sun and my skin don't get along. So shade is great for me. Anyway, uh, today is Sunday, June 13th third Sunday after Pentecost, and I kind of referred to last week a possibility of a sermon series on uh, part of what that sermon included, which was kind of doing what God wants us to do. So this sermon is called, How Do I Know What God Wants Me to Do? And we'll be, there are several pass. there are several verses from uh, Psalm 119, Uh, Colossians chapter 3, selected verses, and also selected chapters and verses from Matthew 4, 7, and uh, 22, I believe. So you'll hear those from our lector, David Iannotti, who is one of the lay leaders in our congregation. And uh, I hope you enjoy this message. Um, It really is kind of like what the sermon title is about, and I'm going to talk more about different aspects of that in the next week or two for sure. And I invite you to join with me in a brief word of prayer. Holy One, as cars go by and people cross the street to the farmer's market in Skokie and wherever we may be listening, we give you thanks for the gift of life, the gift of the sun, the gift of the recent rain that came here in Chicagoland. And we give you thanks for this opportunity to take some time to hear your scriptures, and to hear an exploration of them, which it is my privilege to give, O Lord, and I thank you for that. Bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, on to our lector. Our readings today are a little disjointed as they come from a handful of books, or even chapters and verses within a book. Our first reading is a trio of verses found in Psalm 119, which is the longest psalm in the Bible. It is known as a meditation on the law of God. Our verses this morning, and perhaps a few surrounding ones, are 11, 97, and 105. With my whole heart I seek you. Do not let me stray from your commandments. I treasure your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Verse 97. Oh, how I love you, your law. It is my meditation all day long. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is always with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your decrees are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This ends the reading from the Hebrew Scriptures. Our epistle lesson lessons are from the letter to the Colossians, chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, and then 2 Timothy 3 verse 10 through 17. Let's start with Colossians as it comes earlier in the New Testament. 
As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in the body, in the one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, and with gratitude in your hearts sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 17. Paul writes, Now you have observed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my path, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and my suffering. The things that have happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystria. What persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Indeed, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But wicked people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving others and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from, from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. This ends the reading from the letters. Our worship carries on with the musical meditation from our music director, Ben Westfall.
Thank you. Our gospel readings come from Matthew. We'll hear from chapter 4, verse 4, then from chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Lastly, we hear verses 34 through 40 in chapter 22. This time I will just read straight from the first to the final verses. But Jesus answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, with which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Here ends the reading of the scriptures for today's service. Thanks be to God for this, the word of the God of life, for the life of the people of God. Who told his disciples when praying, we might and they might pray like this. And so using his words, we also pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. When have you done something or refrained from doing because you believed that's what God wanted you to do or to not do? Were there particular times when you and maybe you and some others had, a, had to make a choice, a decision, and you acted out of the belief that this was God, what God desired? And maybe that blessed assurance has happened bunches of times. Maybe it happens every day. Well, in making such a choice, how did you reach that decision? How did you truly believe you were doing what the Lord had in mind for you to do or refrain from? And maybe it was not actual thinking, this is God's will, so let's do this, but more along the lines of, 
my heart, my gut, my conscience tells me this is the right choice. And later on, we hope and we hope to find that yes, that was God's choice too. But how do you and I know God's desires for us? How does St. Peter's United Church of Christ in Skokie ascertain what God's will for this congregation is? I think that for a lot of us, so many of our practices, the lessons we've learned about ethics, our beliefs, came from our parents first, or grandparents, maybe Sunday school teachers, youth group leaders, friends that we hung around with at formative times in our lives, and maybe it wasn't spelled out that this is divine direction. We absorb it too. We absorb it from parents and others. And beyond that, I know at times a movie or lines in a movie will speak deeply to our spirit and stays with us. How about the line from Albus Dumbledore and Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire? Dark and difficult times lie ahead. Soon we all must face the choice between what is right and what is easy. One of my confirmation students spoke that to me to show she got what I was leading up to. The saying can apply to knowing and choosing what God wants for us, because a lot of times that's not easy, but it is right. Well, how do you and I know what God wants us to do? Yes, it can be planted within us at an early age, and not always directly through a church or synagogue, perhaps indirectly, as far as we know. Well, how else? It is such a huge question. I'll spend next week's message on aspects that I cannot touch on this morning, and there will probably be a third message about it on the 27th. First, I think you and I and the church need to remember this. We are not God. I'm reminded of a verse that we do not have in our readings today, where God says in Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, my, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Our consciences can be fallible and sneakily guide us down what turns out to be a selfish path. Our hearts are not usually 100% pure. Jeremiah said, the heart is devious above all else. Who can understand it? Our parents are not, were not, always right. The same with books, pastors, friends, and other influencers that I noted. There is value but none of them or us is God or God's historic written word. So we rely on God to let us know what God wants us to do. And God works through other people. We understand that. We rely on God to let us know what God wants us to do and how to do it. How then does God communicate to us to share the divine purposes and will when we have decisions to make? That's a large question. God taught us, God has spoken to us, God has sought to let people and nations know what God wants them to do throughout creation, especially through Israel, and then in the New Testament. As Don Kahn once told me, God's always talking to us. Trouble is, we're often not listening. 
So if we believe that God has shared what he wants us to do, either for you or me as individuals or as families or a church or a community, that's belief, not knowledge. And people of faith always live with that tension. So going back to my first question, how many times do we recall doing or choosing something because we believe or you believed God has already taught you what he wants you of you or me or the church. I hope a lot of times. I hope a lot, a lot. Some of you may remember, uh, by way of an example, my profanity story. In the summer of 76, I invited Christ into my heart and things changed inside. My friend Bob, who asked me to make this invitation, but it was only an ask, he got me back to reading the Bible regularly. I worked on the grill at a popular restaurant in Columbia Heights, outside, just outside Minneapolis. And uh, when the pressure was on, when it was a dinner rush in the summer or a lunch rush, uh, my teenage rebellion of swearing was on display. And then, after becoming a Christian, and I started reading the Bible, I read James 1 at the end, where it reads, If any think they are religious, and do not bridle their tongues, but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. That stopped me in my tracks. James was talking to me. I began to work on keeping my mouth closed before I opened it at work to swear. I asked for help from the Holy Spirit again and again. I worked at it. I prayed about it. Over time, my swearing at work faded. And one night, Sarah Newald came up to the grill, put down a ticket, and she said, Rich, she was one of the few people who could get away calling me Rich, uh, you don't swear anymore, which led to a nice discussion on a slow night about faith. I found what God's will for me was from the scriptures, even though my parents forbade profanity. Like I said, it was a teenage rebellion. Ah, yes, the scriptures. I bet you could guess I was going there as soon as you listened to David read all these passages. The Bible is the first place we find what God wants you or me to do, and sometimes that comes to us through other people. A lot of times, a lot of times it does. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It is our guide. When on our own strength and insight, or just because things happen this a certain way, the path is dark, a light to shine on where we are going or what ways not to go. Look, there's a big pothole there. It comes from things God has told us. It's a light. It's a lamp. It's up to us, of course, to act on that illumination. Another verse, Paul said, let the word of Christ, word of Christ, dwell in you richly. For God's word to live in us, to dwell in us, not just visit us, it means a familiarity that only comes over time with intentional time spent on reading, hearing, even doing a study on scriptures, especially pertaining to Jesus' teaching. Let it dwell live, to take up residence in you and me. 
That implies that we've invited it in to live within us, and that means no more ignoring it or saying hi perchance we pass in the hallway, but crack open something and get another coffee or, and read as if we're having a conversation. A, Bible stu- a study Bible, by the way, is of immense help. Before I leave this little phrase, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, I love the word richly here. Let the word of Christ live in us abundantly, and to the point it is in our bones. It's similar to Paul's exhortation to Timothy to continue in what you have learned. He's talking about the past, growing up with being taught, and firmly believed, and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching and for training in righteousness so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. It's so that we are equipped to do good stuff. One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, bread is needed to live, especially back then, just so is God's communications to us needed for the life that really is life, a life of honoring God and blessing others. Most of you know that I have confirmation students memorize a quartet of passages from the Bible. One is Micah 6.8, and here's why. Because it makes clear what God requires, not just what God expects, what God desires, but this is what the Lord requires of you, it says, So if we are uncertain what choice to make or where to invest our energies, and that's kind of my point for confirmation students to have this memorized, if you're uncertain, here's what God requires. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? When Jesus told us, as we heard what the two greatest commandments were, we love our neighbors in a whole lot of ways. And in Micah, we're given what can be a macro way of loving our neighbors in society. Do justice. For living in communities less macro, our friends and foes, our neighborhoods, if not broader, love kindness, which is about being in covenant, says Walter Brueggemann. And then the micro, more individual aspect, walk humbly with your God. God spoke those words to the whole of Israel. Seeking to know what God wants us to do through what God has told us in the scriptures turns out, for the psalmist anyway, to be a beloved thing, a passion. From the writers of Psalm 119, they or he said, with my whole heart I seek you. I treasure your word in my heart. Oh, how I love your law for it is always with me. Spend enough time in the community of the word, listening, reading, surrounding ourselves with things that upbuild our faith, we may find our love for the things of Christ increasing. God teaches us to do good things for others. Now by now, I imagine some of you will want to respond to what I've said maybe coming from a bunch of different areas, I'm only going to guess one, but that's fine. Because we are not fundamentalists, where we interpret the written word of God without taking the historical, cultural, even linguistic concerns into account. 
With fundamentalists, we find little care for understanding symbolism, hyperbole, and the mindset of many of the Jewish sayings that were not meant to be taken literally like we do because that era did not look at things literally like we tend to do. There was room for exaggeration. It was a style. Hyperbole made a point, not a point of doctrine. And we know that the Bible has also been used for repression, oppression, injustice, and warfare. And Pride Month is a good month to reflect on that. Back at seminary, a woman named Barbara told us how she was married to a physically abusive husband and wanted out of that marriage. But her church family said, no, the Bible says her husband is the head of the household, head over her, and she must not leave him or divorce him. That would be disobedience. Suffering is just part of the deal. God knows best after all. And sometime afterward, I was uh, educated that among women Christians, there is a distinct dislike for and aversion to the word obedience in pretty much any context because of its horrid, violent, and repressive unjust uses over history. Thankfully, my friend Barbara got past a frozen understanding of God's word or only on these passages and not the larger message of Scripture. God does not want persons to be abused, to be beaten or threatened. And especially when Scripture is used to sanctify that abuse, I can't imagine what goes on in God's head and heart. And you and I, we know that there are many more ways the Bible has been misappropriated for how to treat others or mistreat them. We have to acknowledge that although the Bible is the first and the best way for you and me to learn what God wants you or me to do, the Bible has to be interpreted beyond a fundamentalist, always frozen set of interpretations. Do I believe there is stuff that good, was good then and is still good now? You bet. But we do well to read the scriptures, not only with a, a sense for, their, for eternal value, but also knowing a lot about the historical context, the ways it has been misused, and more. But also, we can look at them like a set, with a set of glasses. That's my preferred image, my preferred image for understanding. Uh, and I might have picked it up from John Calvin. My spectacles as I believe I've shared, have lenses that see, and when it comes to scripture and reading it and trying to understand it and interpret it, my spectacles have lenses that see things through the love and power of God in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. Does what I'm reading square at all with the love and power of God I see there? If it does not, if it seems to be in conflict with it, its authority is at best weaker in my eyes and possibly empty. I have Micah 6.8 as a partial lens, how I interpret things. I have the two great commandments in the lenses. I have the birth of Jesus, because there's the second person of the Godhead emptied into human form to pursue humankind and demonstrate the depth of God's pers profound pursuing love for humankind's sake. These are part of my lenses that I interpret scripture through. 
At seminary, we had a professor named Chris Becker. His theology was one of what he called core and contingency. The gospel message of Jesus is the core. And the gospel is also found in what is contingent, what is related to the message, which touches upon, but it's not straight out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the contingency, and he said not all of the New Testament were so contingent to the core of Christ. So you had to, there was this theology, how do you determine that? And that's why he had us read this big, thick book in his class and get confused sometimes. A person, a professor I admired, Bruce Metzger, compared, in his own way, the authority of Scripture to how much salt was in the sea. You go in a boat to one area of the sea, you get a cup of it, you go do a salt analysis, and look, there's a lot of salt in the water. It's loaded. Other areas in the ocean are closer to being fresh water. There's not so much salt there. Just so, he said, there are parts of the Bible that do not have so much salt and thus are not so much God's will or God's word. For example, Psalm 137's, Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. And I think it was originally, dash their heads against a rock. Yeah, I don't know that that really squares with Jesus on Calvary's cross. We could do an entire Bible study series on the Bible and how to seek understanding from it. The overall message of the Bible and of Christ create my lenses to the best of my human ability. It's salt in the saltwater Bible to me. It's love, it's justice, it's mercy and hope and peace taught there that I then apply to how I find in Scripture what God is telling me what God wants me to do. They surely help me, and perhaps all of you too, to draw nearer to knowing to the point any human can know what God truly wants you and me to do. There's a whole lot more to it than this. Other aspects, including, say, the role of community, and that's just one. So come back next Sunday. Amen. I hope you enjoyed the intro to the sermon by the congregation and I praying the Lord's Prayer together. That was a thought that I had as the pastoral prayer and silent prayers were coming to an end. So I hope you appreciated that. Um, I may do that again from time to time. And I thank you for listening. I'm going to continue this theme next week. I believe I said that, but with some different approaches and different things involved. And God bless your week. Amen.